One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. my young friend our husbands love a gadget don't they my husband uh, has a new gadget Trish which looks for damp we've called it the moistometer oh gosh and you press it against walls and things and it looks to see if it's moist or not it's a little thing you hold in your hand because we've got damp in the house now so obviously because he is a Gen X man brought up on Benny Hill and all manner of ridiculousness. I see where this is going. I can see it. He has been poking it against me to see the bits of me, Trish. Is it moist or not? (laughs) Any bits in particular? Well, you can imagine, can't you? (laughs) And I did think, though, I was like, hold on a minute. This is a good perimenopause gadget, isn't it? Because if you put the rude jokes aside, because obviously you know which yes. bit he was holding up against, uh, which bit of me he was holding against, I was like, you could hold this against your skin, couldn't you, and see how moist or not it is and whether you need more collagen or a little bit more water. And I was thinking, how do we patent this? Uh, but anyway, I just thought I'd tell you about it because it did make me laugh. I've been saving that up for you because it's better than the other gadget he had, which he could never press up against me, which was the power washer. Blew <laughs> you away. And you'd be very damp. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we are experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. So you know, Trish, that when you spend too much time with someone, you sort of start turning into them, which is sort of a bit like that time I went on tour with Marillion for a feature I was writing for a newspaper. Stop washing my hair. I think you're you're just making things up now. Nonsense, nonsense. (laughs) But no, I do know what you mean. You're talking about humans, not pets, aren't you? Because uh, this has nothing to do with the day we realised recently that Margot is biting her own toenails, which I used to do. We thought maybe Margot's morphing into me. No, it is nothing to do with Lady Margot the podcat. I think, my little sensitive friend, that I've started to turn into you (laughs) because I've started to layer up. On the clothing front, um, and you know I'm very anti-unnecessary clothing. I like to keep it minimal. I am not a fan of vests, socks, scarves and the like, or umbrellas, but uh, like Marillion, that's another story. On a recent mini break all the way up to Glasgow, I began to wear layers, Trish. Layers, I'd say. Yes. I wore my giant swimming dry robe on the plane, which is mostly because I was too tight to put it in a suitcase. Check it in. 
but I also had a vest, a t-shirt, a jumper, a wee scarf, as they call it up there, gloves and two pairs of socks. What do you think about that? You can see I'm I'm nodding in approval wholeheartedly, but I'm glad you're, you're finally seeing the light and embracing my ways because uh, I think we both know, don't we, who is really right all the time. Oh, I think I just said that was a bit of a Marion alter ego that I slipped into, <laughs> judgy, passive-aggressive Marion. Just on a little practical note here, weren't you all sort of really bulky in being an annoying space hogger on the plane in that case? I mean, that would have really set me off if I had to sit next to you. No, Trish, I'm a tiny person, so I was able to wrap it <laughs> around me. I was off visiting my 19-year-old who's at uni uh, in Scotland, and I was helping her out with her student flat. And then I took her off, Trish, I took her off on a mini break to Luss on Loch Lomond, which is so beautiful, so beautiful. We were incredibly lucky with the weather, but oh my God, it was cold up there. <laughs> One morning it was three degrees and obviously I went for a little dip in the lock as I do, hence the dry robe. I was very brave. Um, and I was very glad after that, that I was able to put on about 18 layers for the rest of the day. Oh, good layering up. We're actually off to see our boy in Bristol this weekend. I'm anticipating slightly more clement weather as we're off down south, as they say. But um, I've done a big old supermarket shop for him. We're bringing the dog as he's in a bit of need of some comfort. <laughs> Obviously, we're not enough. He needs the dog. Bit of gastric flu, poor chap. That's not very nice. So slightly worried about what we might find because when we dropped him off at his halls, I mean, not the loveliest, I have to say. Uh, pretty grotty already. He's sharing a shower with six other flats. Oh dear. Not going anywhere near that, that's for sure. You really won't be going anywhere near that for your little sensitive ways. No. I did a couple of things in Scotland you'd be proud of me for doing, Trish. I tried veggie haggis. Oh my God. Right. By the look of surprise on the waiter's face, I don't think anyone had ordered that before. But I, I couldn't get on with it. It's just a big old oaty yeah, fest. just oats and ugh. Yeah. That played havoc with my... Uh, Achilles insides, my uh, my dodgy everything down there. I took my rubbish knee, my, my dodgy knee up a Munro, as they call them yes. in Scotland, or a big hill. And I also paid £4.10 for a coffee for a flat white in Lass in the <laughs> I Saw You Coming Tourist Cafe. Top tip, though, if you are there, the uh, coffee shop at the garage is £2.80 and it's just as nice. But I was wearing three layers, Trish, all the time. And my 19-year-old says she always wears two pairs of trousers in winter in Glasgow. <laughs> Because she would rather spend her money on nights out than turn the heating on in their, their flat. It's financial planning, so we should be, uh, you know, proud of that, I would have thought. But Scotland, lucky old you, I love Scotland. I've been to Braemar, where they do the Highland Games, Sky, Isle of Sky, Malcromity. I would possibly recommend going in the summer the next time you go. I mean, it'll still be cold, and never mind the vests. I think I'd have to wear cashmere knickers. Well, I like the sound of that. Mmm, cosy. Well, I was really chuffed with my... Uh, I did three early morning dips, one morning as the sun was rising, which honestly is one of the most... Well, I think it's in the top five highlights of my life. It was so beautiful. It was really idyllic. Aww. So I popped a little picture on Instagram because obviously I can't do anything without telling the whole world. And one of our listeners congratulated me. This is how well they know us, Trish. And she said, well done for doing that without your bonnet. Oh, your swim cap with the strap. Yes, she was referring to my under-the-neck, over-the-ears neoprene swim cap, which I hadn't taken. Yes. But I might wear my bonnet on the plane next time. I think you might have an empty seat next to you. Even if someone's booked that seat, it'll be empty. They'll move somewhere else. 
Uh, but you, you could go straight from the runway then into the lock, couldn't you? Do, do not stop going straight into the lock. Well, while you were up north, I did a little trip north myself. Went to see my dad in North London. He's on the mend. Regular listeners will know I had to do that mercy dash to Spain about five weeks ago because he ended up in hospital with pneumonia. But he's back now. He's on very good form. We watched uh, Strictly Come Dancing together. And then we watched a film, Fisherman's Friends. You like that one, don't you? Cornish Connection, the Cornish uh, shanty singers. Never ending on this show, those Cornish mentions. But anyway, it was very jolly. Made me very happy to see him doing so well. Well, I am glad your dad is getting better. It's always good to know, isn't it? So our mission, though, is is always to look on the upside of life, isn't it, Trish? And um, yes, we found some lovely sunny offerings after we launched our mini magazine postcards from Lorraine and Trish on Substack uh, three weeks ago. It's been really nice, actually. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed so far. £5 a month for two very useful, helpful mini magazines, which get emailed to you. And then you get access to all the past issues as well. Yes, and it's uh, it's not just for women in midlife, it's for all ages and stages of life. Um, it did seem to go down rather well, didn't it? Which is rather thrilling for us because um, obviously all our content here on the podcast and on other platforms is free. Uh, but Postcards from Lorraine and Trish is something we worked hard on for readers, lots of exclusives and advice, interviews, tips, women's stories, behind the scenes looks at our lives, families and friendships. So we felt... Um, we felt we should be supported financially, didn't we, in producing it? Everybody liked the upbeat tone of our mini magazine, Postcards from Lorraine and Trish, and our focus on good reads, real-life stories and humour. My favourite little review from a reader was, your writing sings to me. Oh, do you think that's a hint that she doesn't want any actual singing? She'd rather just keep it in the writing. <laughs> Well, issue three is on the way and we've got some big plans for next year. But right now we should tell listeners about our guest today, who is also here to help you navigate life's ups and downs too. We'll be chatting with Dr. Emma Hepburn, an award-winning clinical psychologist with over 20 years experience of working with and treating mental health difficulties in both the public and private sectors. But her speciality is making us all feel less stressed about life with easy, simple to follow guidance that helps you understand what is going on in your brain when life gets a bit tricky, a bit tricky and sticky. Yes. Well, I can't wait to meet Emma because um, I think she's going to help you with the rumination wheel. Oh, yes. Trish, you know, when your brain starts whirring round and round and catastrophizing and, and you can't get out of the loop and I have to distract you with a book about cats learning to dance <laughs> like that. She does talk about the rumination wheel in her new book, A Toolkit for Your Emotions, and we're going to be quizzing her on the book. Yes, but first, let's get started uh, with our last jibber-jabber uh, of the season. And in fact, the year, uh, we've almost come to the end of Series 10 of the podcast. Our final show is next week. It's our Christmas special landing in your phone on Sunday the 3rd of December and we'll be bringing in an expert on the festive season who's possibly more enthusiastic about Christmas than uh, Santa Claus himself. We're going to be talking to the ever so practical and knowledgeable Holly Tucker who founded Holly and & Co and Not on the High Street and she's going to talk us through how to enjoy the best Christmas ever without blowing the budget or wishing you could get on a one-way train to Florida minus all your relatives, which is a thought that often crosses my mind at Christmas. I can't wait to meet Holly. But now it's time to take a look back over 2023 and jibber-jabber about some happy highlights we want to share with you, which you might find helpful or uplifting. (laughs) 
So we started uh, the year on the podcast with the midlife divorce special. Coach Amanda Gardner came on and we are ending it next week with an episode of festive fun. But what did we learn in the middle from all the amazing celebrities and experts we've interviewed during the course of 2023? Well, Quite a lot, really, I think. Um, and this part of the show, this jibber-jabber, is our personal look back to the happy highlights of this year. Lorraine, do you want to kick off, even though you're wearing your tabard of doom? I'm wearing my tabard of doom. We've had an unlucky start to the morning. Nothing worked on my computer. I seem to have got pneumonia, and uh, it's all this woolly layer wearing. It, yes, it's the layers. Anyway, firstly, on the subject of highlights, Obviously, we have to mention our joint highlight, which was our live show in May. It was massive. Thousands of women came along. We had so much lovely support, which we're really grateful for. And it was great to meet all those listeners in the flesh, actually, and some of their gifts. Somebody brought me hobnobs. And we met the lovely fire women who had used podcasts as a way of getting their mostly male bosses to take menopause in the workplace seriously. But... Bum, bum, bum. We have decided to do something a bit different next year, haven't we, Trish? Yes, we have. We have to admit that we did find organising the event quite stressful <laughs> alongside family life, all the other work. So in 2024, we won't be doing one big show. We're going to be doing several smaller shows and they will be all around the country. So we're going to travel, aren't we, to meet um, all of you lovely listeners. So uh, do keep uh, tuned in for news of what we'll be doing and when. And if you join our private Facebook group, we will post all the details of these events on there and also uh, link you to our new Substack mini magazine. We might even do a little weekend retreat for you lovely ladies in our community. Uh, that idea of like gathering like-minded spirits to offer guidance and advice on midlife. So lots of ways to get in-person advice from us and our network and meet each other as well next year. But before that, what have been your highlights this year, Lorraine? Well, I've learned something this year from the wonderful guests, the women that we've had on the show. I've learned something I'm calling the power of soft endurance, which is a very different way for me to be in my new midlife. You know, Tamsin Althwaite talked about rebirth. This this feels like the rebirth bit. And I've just been soaking up all the advice, particularly from women like Raina Wynne, amazing Andy Oliver, uh, Sarah Beanie, and actually Kate Garraway, who I met earlier this month when I was interviewing her on stage for something. And it's this idea of not fighting everything, enduring everything, um, and finding a, a way to soothe my way through slightly more tricky situations, as Catherine May said, finding that soothing feeling. So this has been a bit of a pivot for me because it's been a realisation that I can be a new me. I can react to things in a completely different way. I don't have to fight it, solve it, cure it, battle my way through. I can just take a step back, be a bit more curious and look inward and change my response to it. So change a response to stress, all of that kind of thing. It's been a real sort of pivot. Do you remember when Andy Oliver came on and talked about how she dealt with all the racism, which could have made her the most angry woman ever in her 50s? And actually what she'd done is gone through it in her mind, worked out how to react to it, stopped it really eating her up inside, pointed it out where it needed to be pointed out. And I thought that's a very lovely, softer way of dealing with it. And when I was talking to Kate Garraway recently and everything she's been through with Derek and and doing this enormous job, she said she just has learned to take life in the moment and really just sort of deal with it and make the best of it and feel the best of the moments. And I thought, it does sound so simple, but if you think to yourself, 
I'm going to do this in a softer, more vulnerable way, a less endurance mindset, then you do switch the way you feel about things. And that does become a bit of a habit. So I just think, what's the point in getting worked up about it? What's the point in worried about it? When someone does something for me, sometimes they are making my life easier. But my first reaction often is, why are you doing that for me? I can sort that out myself. <laughs> and then I look back and think, do you do it then? It makes my life easier. That's what I have learned. Look inward, as Raina Wynn said. Yes. Well, I think it's kind of ties in a bit with, with my first thought as well, which is that I would say this year has been my most consistently happiest year for quite a long time. I feel like, you know, we talk about being in that midlife liminal space, um, you know, where you're kind of questioning, who am I? What am I doing? Um, Etc. I feel like I'm on the other side of that now. I've come out the other side. I'm feeling really at peace with who I am, you know, whether it's how I look, where I am in life. I'm not looking too much into the future and worrying about it. I'm not looking into the past and thinking, oh God, you know, my job, whatever happened to that? And, oh, I, and I'm not doubting myself anymore. And I think I've got a couple of things to thank for that. Because uh, as you know, I started the year, I was halfway through that course called Deepening into Life with coach and therapist Donna Lancaster, which was all about spirit-led living, gratitude, forgiveness, joy, and letting go of the beliefs, people, and objects that no longer serve you, which I think ties into what you were saying. And of course, we then got Donna onto the show. And I think that lovely, calm, kind energy of women like Donna is so nurturing and empowering. And also Catherine May, I mean, I just remember walking walking through some woods, listening to one of her podcasts and just looking at raindrops, looking at leaves. It was just a really beautiful experience. But what I'm mindful of is that something Tamsin Althwaite said on our episode last week, which was that she didn't want to stay in her comfort zone. So I feel like I'm in a comfort zone now. She said it's important to keep challenging yourself. So I'm going to be thinking about that as I go into next year. Will you be going out without a vest? Only if it's really hot, only if it's above 30 degrees. I'm aiming for full Carol Vorderman. That's what Crikey, that is, you have set the bar high I'm with full the Carol Vorderman. If anybody listened to that episode, she's got her shit together, hasn't she? She really has got her life and all her values and priorities and everything very well sorted. The peak Carol, that's what we're going you for. You are going for peak Carol. So should we have the Carolometer over yes. uh, the next yes. season? So every time you do a bit of Carol, I'll turn the dial up until you get to yes. full Carol, till you're a hundo P Carol, 100% Carol. Okay, that's the thing to aim for. So my other highlight of the year, as you know, I wrote a book. <laughs> do you? I don't know if I mentioned it or moaned about the writing of it at any point with you, Trish. Anyway, I wrote What's Wrong With Me, which was my second book. It came out in May and it was the week after our postcards from Midlife Live. Uh, Actually, the paperback is out in 2024. It's got a new cover in February. But what I learned from the book was what I learned from the women I met at book festivals that I travelled to around the country. And the book gifted me so many new friends as well, because I did so many things with other authors, with Susanna Wise, with Christy Watson. I just met these really lovely, empowered and empowering women, which was so nourishing. It was like, you know, refueling me. It's giving me loads Mm. more energy in the battery. But what I also met was a lot of men. I met a lot of partners of these women. Oh, yes. And it really struck me how we have to include men in this conversation around menopause, midlife, overwhelm 
all the emotional labour of the sandwich generation who are looking after kids and looking after parents. So if we don't include men in this conversation, then they won't know what to do. They won't know how to support us. And I had an amazing man come up to me in Cornwall when I was at a book festival in Rock. And he said, I've bought loads of these books. I bought one for my wife and who can't be here today. But I just now I know what's going on with her because your talk has told me what's going on with her. But I've bought it for her friends as well. And I thought that's what we need. We need the message spread to everybody via the partners as well. Because when you go through midlife and you hit all the surprising things we hit, which hopefully won't be a surprise for the next generation, then you need everybody to know about how to support you. Otherwise, it's exhausting talking about it and then telling everyone. Yeah. It just needs to be a natural thing. So I learned that, but I also learned from going on the podcast of other women who are much younger than me, which I did a lot, um, obviously, as publicity for the book. And I went on Annie McManus's, uh, the lovely Annie's uh, podcast, and she said she didn't know about it. I thought she didn't know about perimenopause. Oh, my God. All yeah. of that. So yeah. it was fascinating to be able to talk to her and to listen to, to see all the comments afterwards when we put the episode up. And I just thought, God, what a useful thing we have done. Because I know you and I, when we started talking about being made redundant, outside our 30 years of a career, suddenly not having it, then talking about our own personal menopause and perimenopause journey, we did have a moment when we thought, why are we doing this? It's so personal, not natural in a Gen X woman really to share that kind of, you just get on with it. You don't really talk about it with anyone. And I am so glad we did because through doing these podcasts with younger women, spreading that knowledge, raising the voice of it, it's just going to make life a lot better for other people. So when I'm in my moments thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? What's my next stage? I just think actually you and I have achieved quite a good thing. We're proud of ourselves. And I notice on the Facebook group, there's a lot of shame around women who aren't doing the job they used to do, who feel like their divorce is some kind of failure, that their children have left home and they weren't the best parents. And I really think we don't ever take a moment to think about the moments when we've been done something really good yes. and we should be proud yes. of ourselves. So I learned yes. that this year, that I am proud of myself for the book and all the stuff that came out of it. Well, well done you, and so you should be. Um, and I think what you were talking about connects to my sort of, <laughs> well, I was going to say this year, highlight the NHS prepayment certificate for HRT in England, where we only have to pay for it once. But that has come out of all of this, isn't it? Of people like us and everybody else talking about uh, the importance of menopause. And I think the issue of women's health, we need to be talking more and more about that because, you know, the poor old NHS is in crisis, isn't it? But I think more and more of us are gaining the knowledge and empowering ourselves about health. And I've actually had three of the healthiest people I know, three very good friends, all became very ill this year. And it can happen to anyone, but they all had the sort of agency in their particular situation to kind of push for the right treatment, uh, to sort of, you know, really engage with the process of their treatment. And I think that's because they were informed and also they recovered really well because they were healthy. And a lot of uh, what we're doing again on the podcast is around that, isn't it? So, the glucose goddess, Jessine Chopsey, when she came on, that's another thing. Because the other thing I was going to say is I feel really physically well this year. And I think I'm going to thank the glucose goddess. Strength training we talked about a few weeks ago. But we've had a lot of really great fitness experts come on the show. We had Lucy Wyndham reed who does her seven-minute fitness. So it's this idea of, you know, we know that not everybody has got the time to, you know, go and do Pilates for an hour. But these seven-minute fitness routines that she does... 
Petra Fisher, she's fantastic as well. I mean, she does that from her travels around the world and all her stuff about foot health and pelvic floor, really good. And also, we're not forgetting menopause. We're probably not talking about it as much because obviously we've covered it in so much depth over the last few years. But we did do a brilliant uh, menopause and midlife health 101 with Dr. Sam Wilde this year as well. So that's there to reference as well. So yeah, women's health issues, pushing those up the agenda, I think, and, and seeing the effects of that has been really good this year. The last little highlight of the year for me, which, you know, we do have to earn money. So we are aware of that. We've done a little plan, haven't we, Trish, where we yes. make sure we can reboot ourselves properly, put our own oxygen masks on first and get back out there with all that energy if we get the right time off. So I took August off this year, went home home to Cornwall um, and spent it there. And I was just struck while I was there. Uh, I was out having a little swim uh, on my own very early in the morning. It's very cold. The sun was out. I was at Grenaway Beach <laughs> or a little Green bit away. further around <laughs> at Damer. And I was swimming. I was out quite deep, but I was swimming along. And this huge shoal of mackerel, I mean, they're quite big mackerel, but they are amazing. When the sun shines on them, the silver is shimmery, quite yes. extraordinary. They just swam around me as if I wasn't there. And it was just one of those little moments where you feel quite tiny in life and you realise sort of how much bigger everything is around you and how kind of small your worries and fears and thoughts and all those insecurities might be when something so powerful like that, nature is just carrying on and I had the privilege to be part of it. And I I walked home with my little dry robe on, took my bonnet off, obviously. I uh, don't want those little fishes in my ears, Trish, you know, I feel oh, that no, my ears. Oh, in your ears, no. <laughs> and I just sort of wandered home thinking, you know, we're all small, but we all make a difference. And we should just do the things that bring us great joy and don't make us stressful. And that sounds very simplistic and very privileged thing to say, but it also... I also got that sense that this achievement mindset that a lot of us have isn't really that useful to us uh, anymore. It's nice to do things well, but it also made me think about all the other things in life we like that are more creative, the art, the music, all those little things. And I think we sometimes don't bring those things into our lives in midlife because we are so busy. There is so yeah. much to do, but there yeah. is all of that still there around us and collectively we should be reminding each other, shouldn't we? Have you read that? Yes. Have you seen that film? Have you listened to this? It's just, you know, nudging each other. And that all came out of just a sort of very lovely, yeah. quiet moment on my own, Trish. That little mackerel episode is your wow moment that Donna Lancaster talks about. So daily you think about, you know, help thanks wow. So you think about what you're thankful for, a wow moment, which could be the mackerel. It could just be something you see in the park. The ferret, last week's ferret was a bit wow for me. And then obviously maybe thinking about what you need help with or what you could help somebody with. So I think that's that's lovely, finding the wow in the everyday. Um, I'm just going to finish off with the empty nest situation because obviously last year, last autumn, we Neil and I, full empty nest, twins gone, uh, off to university we found a new family rhythm because we, we talk a lot about the fact that you can't imagine them going, what's it going to be like without them, but you get into this rhythm and of course they come back. <laughs> that space away from them made me realise that I don't need to keep telling them what to do all the time. I'm terrible. When they come back, Trish, I find you don't need to tell to do. anyone what to do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know, but it's kind of like just let them do it. You know, they they have flinched. I mean, they're not the fully formed thing, but they're fabulous young adults. It is an adjustment. But what happened when Lisa Damore came on, the clinical psychotherapist and parenting expert, she's a New York Times bestseller. She came on, didn't she? I think around February or March. And everything she talked about, my kids weren't there. They weren't in the house. I'm not involved in them in that during that month. Um, it just helped me look back on my parenting, on them. And yes, of course, there were things I felt like I hadn't got right, but there were a lot of things I had got right. And it just helped me sort of not draw a line under it, but sort of think, right, I'm done with the mum guilt. I'm just not, I'm not doing that anymore. I've done a good job. It's ongoing. They'll always need me there for support, but it's kind of moved on. And then of course, you're then adapting with your partner, aren't you? So just two things to say about that. Relationships can be tricky at this point when the dynamics in the household shift and you suddenly there's just the two of you and you kind of realize, oh, have we drifted apart a bit? So we spoke to Janet Reebstein, didn't we, the relationship expert who had some really good advice. She came on to talk about her book, Good Relations, Cracking the Code of How to Get On Better. And uh, if it's the bedroom department where things are going wrong, just going to say, Ruth Ramsey, listen to our episode. She was very good, Ruth Ramsey. There we are. Highlights. Wherever you are on the emotional roller coaster of life right now, whether it be joyful, content, and calm, or sad, anxious, and downright raging. This week's special guest is here to help you make sense of the turmoil and learn how to interact with all of your emotions, the good and the bad, more positively. Dr. Emma Hepburn is an award-winning clinical psychologist who has over 20 years' experience of working with and treating mental health difficulties in both the public and private sectors. The 46-year-old mother of two became a lockdown sensation thanks to the cute and colourful drawings she'd been posting on Instagram which illustrates psychological concepts in an accessible and amusing way. Her account, The Psychology Mum, now has more than 135,000 followers, and she is also the author of three books, A Toolkit for Modern Life, A Toolkit for Happiness, and this year's A Toolkit for Your Emotions, which Emma writes in between her work for NHS Scotland and as a lecturer at Aberdeen University. She says there are lots of myths about happiness and what makes us happy, which means we often look for happiness in the wrong places. I look at the brain and think about why it isn't designed for happiness and how we can work around our natural brain biases and shortcuts to improve our well-being. She joins us today to arm us with the tools to help us navigate our own emotions as well as support our children and teenagers through theirs. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Emma. Thank you. It's great to be joining you today. I'm very excited because I've listened to your podcast for quite a while now. We're very flattered. Thank you. Well, listen, uh, we should start really, I think, by naming a few emotions because most of us would probably go for what we think are the obvious ones, but you've been what you call collecting emotions mm. for quite a while. So do you want to share maybe what some of the more nuanced ones are and maybe throw in a few that you've already been experiencing yeah. this morning? So I love emotion words. And like you say, I've collected them throughout my life, not actually knowing that this was improving my ability to deal with emotions. Because the more we can describe emotions, the more accurately we can describe them, the better we are at, at responding to them. Some of my favourites are discombobulated, which we all use 
quite a lot. It's not that uncommon, but it's just a brilliant word because it captures just so well and it sounds I said onomatopoeia or how it sounds. It just brilliantly captures that kind of discombobulation, not feeling kind of quite with it, not sure what's going on. So I love that. Another one I love is Velicor. And this is the feeling when you step into a used bookshop. Now, there's some amazing used bookshops. There's one in Glasgow that I love going into. And there's a feeling that you go into. You're surrounded by all these books. And it's just a wonderful feeling. And it's quite specific. So that's two of my favourites. I have many favourites. It was really hard to pin it down. I have about 40 words written here. But I've chosen two that I think are really relevant to your podcast. The first one is, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong because often these come from other languages. This is German. Is Torschlusspanik, which is literally translated as door closing panic. And it's a feeling that a window of opportunity is being closed to you as you get older. So you can maybe no longer do the things that you hoped you could do or you might want to do in the future. Because I think we all go around thinking we've got this you know, amazing possibilities in front of us. Suddenly you realize, actually, I can't do all those things. There's many things I won't be able to do. So that's the first one I thought was relevant. But then I thought this one was also very relevant, which is strike hedonia, the pleasure of saying to hell with it. Because I think as we get older, yeah. we say to hell with so many things. And often that's societal expectations, what we think we should be doing. We let go of things that don't serve us anymore. So I think that's an absolutely wonderful one for your podcast as well. And then you asked as well what I felt today. And I felt so many emotions are ready today because that's what we feel every day. So I've been frustrated when I was trying to find my daughter's shin pad this morning, getting them to school, trying to rush them out the door. A bit overwhelmed as I try and worked out what was actually happening today and all the things I had to do. Excited and nervous about coming on your podcast, both at the same time. Joy, because I've got a painter in the house and he's just finished painting a room that has transformed it and has been making me feel terrible for quite a long time now because it's such a kind of dismal room and I feel absolute joy has been painted. So many emotions already and it's only 12 o'clock. That's wonderful because... As you say, once we know them, we can name them and then we can understand what we're feeling and then we can settle in it, can't you? Now, we are Gen X women. Um, we were brought up in the 80s, which was all manner of horrors, really, obviously, <laughs> around us. But we were also told, not cruelly, but probably by most of our parents, that we had to really bury our emotions and that it was a little self-indulgent to be talking about them out loud. Some of us, Trish, are Catholic. <laughs> you can imagine that whole can of worms. If, and I'm speaking generally, if we come from a place where we've buried our emotions, pushed them down, and then we're in this midlife place where the door has shut a bit and we've got a bit of that panic, what's the effect that's having on us internally and externally as women? So I think I'm going to start by answering that to say it's not just the 1980s. It's actually 2,500 years before the 1980s because that idea that emotions are something we need to take control of, push down, showing them maybe makes us weak or indulgent is a really long-held belief dating back to Plato and Aristotle. And it's transformed in how it's presented throughout history. But certainly in the 1980s, that's very much a view I was brought up in Scotland in the 1980s, very similar view. I was really proud of the fact I could sit through a really sad film and not cry, even though it was quite painful. <laughs> I would keep it all in and I was proud of that. But actually, the last 10 years, the neuroscience of emotions has changed so much that we really need to shift that belief. Because what emotions are, 
is something we need to understand. And they really are understanding the data in our body so we know what to do about it in the context we're in. Our brain creates emotions because it's, or creates feelings because it's trying to conserve or manage our energy and keep us safe. So our brain is designed to balance your body. And then our brain makes sense of this with some emotion words or some words maybe like hungry, so it knows what to do about them. So if we don't understand them, we push them down. First of all, that's actually quite stressful for our body. Trying to ignore and shove down feelings creates more stress. It's actually really demanding for our brain and body to shove feelings away. So we're actually creating stress in our body. But fundamentally, if we ignore them, we're not listening to the messages and the data that we need to listen to to know what to do about them. So we're not listening to our body saying, I'm stressed. Okay, I need to do something about it. We're shoving it away and our body gets out of balance. And ultimately, that can lead to multiple things like burnout, overwhelm, exhaustion, mental health concerns, but also health concerns, because obviously our body and our mind are intrinsically linked. They are, I would argue, to some extent, the same thing. They're all linked together. So if we ignore it, it leads to problems potentially down the line. The next question, what do we do about it, Mm -hmm. I suppose? So we'd love maybe a few tips and some insight and advice for some of the perennial issues that we hear about from our community and experience ourselves, really. So can I kick off with worry? The worries that go round and round our heads, usually in the middle of the night that keep us awake at night. How do we deal with that feeling? I think that's really common. And also at nighttime, it's really common because we're so busy during the day that suddenly we've got a space. And what does our brain do in that space? It fills it. And often it fills it with worries. And often we've kind of been pushing these aside or we just haven't had time to think about them. So they come in at night. And as soon as we try and push them away, if we say, just go away, stop thinking about it, it's a bit like a, a kind of beach ball. The more we push it down, the more they pop back up. It's like, I'm going to make you think about me. Thanks for trying to get rid of me, but I'll make you think about me. So I think the first thing is to actually take time to understand these worries. And that might be time before bedtime potentially, but also maybe time earlier on in the day so we don't get to bedtime. Because sometimes those worries kind of swell around our head and we can't make sense of them or they kind of pop in. And there's usually different kinds of worries. So there might be ones that are really practical things that we need to do something about. There might be ones which are us trying to kind of make sense of the world or make sense of a situation. And we might need to have a think about them, talk them through, you know, kind of focus on them a little bit more. Or there might be ones which are just our brain kind of running ahead of itself and becoming worried about things which are not that important or not that relevant. It might be jumping ahead to the future, catastrophizing that everything's going to be terrible. And sometimes we just need to spot that and say, okay, brain, thanks, you've highlighted it to me, but actually I don't need to worry about that right now. But I know it's there, but actually it's running way ahead. And we can categorize them, understand them and think about what we do about them. And when we give them attention, we're actually reducing their power because they don't have to pop back. They don't have to come into it. And we're making sense of structuring our thoughts around them. So give them attention is not giving them power. It's actually giving us power to know what to do about them. And things like uh, self-doubt and self-criticism and a phrase I hate, but it comes up a lot in our private Facebook group for midlife women is uh, imposter syndrome. And it does Mm. hit you in midlife a bit because you get brain fog. Mm -hmm. So you lose your confidence and you think, well, maybe I couldn't do it all along. And also shame comes up again and again. Okay. So I'm going to break them down to different things here because you talked about imposter syndrome first of all and you said you hated that term I hate that term because I think it 
I see it from a from a feminist point of view. I think women, mostly women, use it, and they use it around. I'm not supposed to be here because the patriarchy has told them they're not supposed yeah. to be here. But I can I can see why it's relevant. Why some women think I'm not here because I can't really do it. Well, I I agree with you because I think imposter syndrome is often created by the environments we're in and what we're being told. And actually, I think we need to rehabilitate self doubt. I think when we internalize self doubt as something that's intrinsically wrong with us that's our context negatively impacting on us but if we rehabilitate self-doubt to say it's perfectly normal to feel self-doubt we all do it actually we need it because if people are overly confident then it's actually unhelpful and in certain jobs like my job it can be significantly detrimental if somebody's overconfident and we need to see it's a normal thing and not an indication of our competence is something that everybody has but we also need to recognize when it becomes crippling and I think that's when it tips over to the edge. So I think the opposite of self-doubt is confidence. Opposite of self-doubt is arrogance to me. And that's not helpful. So we need a fine line in the middle and make sure it's not becoming crippling. And I, I always think of it as scales. So where is your self-doubt? Is it helpful? Is it helping you kind of think about how you respond, think about how you do things? Or is it becoming crippling? If it's becoming crippling, that's time to take action, preferably beforehand. But, you know, speak it through with people. Think about What's your negative voice telling you? You know, is it realistic? Is it fear? How can you speak that through and think about that with other people? But the best way is just to have those supports in place beforehand so you can have people you can go, I'm feeling a bit rubbish about this right now. I'm not sure how to do this. What can I do? Or I'm wondering if I'm doing this wrong. And I think those supports in place beforehand are the best thing you can do to self-help with that. But you mentioned two other things as well. And the first one was critical thinking. Now, our brain is designed to spot the negative. It's just a very natural way our brain is designed to keep itself safe or keep you safe. And there's a really famous uh, psychology paper called Bad is Stronger Than Good because bad things stick with us much, much more. And that's the same with ourselves. So we're much more likely to criticize ourselves and notice what we've done wrong. And often unfairly, and those voices can be really, really powerful and I think the first thing that is, again, if we push it away, it's just going to shout louder and louder and louder. So it's noticing it and giving it space. And actually, quite often when people start to notice it, they're quite shocked at what they say to themselves. They start to realize I've got this inner critic that's saying all these different things to me that are, can be really quite harsh. And you start to stand back from it and look at it objectively. It's quite shocking. And it's shifting that, noticing it and think how would I respond to somebody else in this situation? Because we are naturally far more subjective to ourselves. We can't help it. We're in our own bodies, our own brains. We can't stand back very well and see ourselves from a much more objective stance. But stopping and thinking, how would I respond to other people? And becoming more compassionate with yourself. You know, what are you beating yourself up for? Making a mistake? Well, that's not normal. Are you beating yourself up for having emotions? Well, that's normal. Are you beating yourself up for struggling? Well, that's normal. That's part of being human. And there's a really nice term called common humanity, which is recognizing the common humanity of your experiences. It's not just you that feels this. It's not just you that criticizes yourself. It's not just you that struggles at times. It's not just you that feels pretty rubbish at times. We all feel it. It's just part of being human. And if we see it like that, we take away that kind of personal element that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. And that starts to tackle shame as well, because you mentioned, mentioned shame too. And shame is an emotion that grows as we hide it. If we kind of put our layers up on it, 
it grows and grows and grows and becomes bigger. We start to believe there's something wrong with us. We shouldn't be feeling this way. We shouldn't be experiencing things the way we're doing it. Nobody else, for example, has a room in their house that's unlivable in, or you know, nobody else gets angry with their children, or you know, and, and that's you know, everyday examples can become more extreme than that as well. I see shame. I've got an image in my book of it as an onion with layers that we build up round about it that make it worse. But as soon as we start to peel away those layers and expose a little bit of it and show a little bit of that to people, and it has to be in a safe space with people we trust, we start to reduce the shame and shrink the shame. Because if I say to a friend, oh, I'm just really feeling rubbish, um, feeling rubbish for you know, the last few weeks, they go, oh, gosh, yeah, you know, I was feeling like that last year. You start to think, okay, you take away that kind of personal element and that, that feeling like there's something wrong with you around it and you share that kind of vulnerability. And I think, you know, something I was thinking about as I came on here is there was a lot of shame about menopause because it wasn't spoken about and people felt ashamed that they were you know, experiencing hot flushes, not being able to do things and work. And actually, we all have a role to play, I think, as women and in reducing that shame because if we speak about our own experiences, we validate other people's experiences and that reduces shame collectively. And I have heard, I was in a meeting yesterday and it was wonderful to hear somebody saying, I'm just going to stop because I'm struggling with the words right now. And I need to stop and have a pause and think about what I'm saying because I'm having a bit of a hot flush. And I was like, wow, that was brilliant. And she just said, stop, she wrote it down. She said, right, I'm ready to say what I wanted to say now. That's amazing that she did that because that then reduces the shame that that happens. So basically you're saying talk about it out loud, either to others or mm -hmm. to self and it's all perfectly normal a lot of this keep using that phrase this is all perfectly normal so those are the things women could take away from this isn't it yeah and I think self-compassion I think that's absolutely critical develop compassion for yourself and your experiences so we quoted in our introduction you saying that we often look for happiness in the wrong places mm -hmm. so where should we be looking for it and when we do find it how do we hold on to it <laughs> I think where we often look for happiness is in the places society tells us happiness exists. So we live in a very striving, productive society that tells us that's the things we should be doing. So what do we do? We strive and we continue to do many, many things. And we often think happiness exists in the big things. So waiting for getting the right house or waiting till we find the man or woman of our dreams or getting married or getting that job. It's that big thing that we need to strive for that makes us happy and then what happens is we get on this hedonic treadmill and that just basically means we're continually trying to get to this place and this place will bring us happiness now of course first of all it doesn't usually these big things don't usually bring us that lasting happiness we predict they will but also for constantly striving for these things in the future we forget to do the little things in the here and now that can make us happy because actually the research shows us that it's the small everyday things which have more of an impact on happiness than these big, big things. And if we think about what the big things are we often strive for, it's things, big life events, it's um, money. And those things, you know, obviously a lack of security and money absolutely makes us unhappy. We cannot debate that, you know, our lack of money and poverty is linked to poor mental health and poor health. So we cannot debate that. However, striving for more and more money doesn't incrementally make us happier and things ultimately don't make us happier as well obviously again having enough things to be comfortable 
is really important. But striving beyond that doesn't make us happier. What does make us happier is time wealth. Having time to do the things that are really important to you does make us happier. And I mentioned importance. So rather than doing the things that society tells us we should be doing, tapping into your own values and thinking, what's really important to me? What do I value? How do I want to spend my time? What really engages me? What do I want to ultimately spend my life doing? And that can, of course, be big things, but it can just be the small things. Linking in with your values, understanding your values and building your life around those is really critical. But there's also one very obvious thing, which you've already mentioned today, which predicts well-being and health much more than most things in life. And that's connections. The connections we have in life are absolutely critical. And there's a very long-term study you may have mentioned before in the podcast done in Harvard, which started way back in the 1930s and it's continued on. And ultimately, the thing that predicts well-being and health more than anything else is our social connections, having a supportive social network. So I think spend your time building those, linking those, finding the people that are really meaningful to you is absolutely critical. And investing in people and investing your time in people is absolutely critical. I think that's really important, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. We say it, Trish and I say it all the time, mm-hmm. it's the absolute one thing you can do, be connected. When you hit midlife then, Emma, were you grateful that you had all this training and all this knowledge? Because <laughs> Trish and I hit it. I mean, it was a shit show. It was terrible. We just unraveled and we had no idea. It was free fall out of an, a balloon over the sea mm-hmm. with no parachute. So you've come into it, if you are younger than us, with this knowledge. Has that been helpful? Yes, I, I do think it is helpful because I think it normalizes a lot of what people or what you experience. And also knowledge of the brain is really helpful too. So we understand how the brain works. And don't get me wrong, nobody fully understands how the brain works. It's so complex that so we can't fully understand it. But if you understand a bit of how the brain works, then it can help you understand why things are happening at particular times or why you're feeling a particular way. And normalizing that we all feel pretty rubbish at times, if that by mid-40s, you know, studies show that by 83% of us will have experienced poor mental health at some point in their life. So normalizing all that and the knowledge I have around that is incredibly helpful. But I think there's something that's been far more helpful to me than that. And it's a normalizing what happens at this period in life. Because I think before it was so taboo that people didn't speak about it. And people like you who are speaking about it and normalizing it and taking away that shame and helping people understand it just helps people make sense of it. And also like the idea that it's now a kind of developmental stage and you see it's a developmental stage and that's physically, psychologically. And I think because of women before me, I'm coming to it in a very different way. And so I just finished a job developing a wellbeing service in my local NHS board. And when I came into the job, we engaged staff and we said, um, what do you want from a wellbeing service? And we went to lots of people and asked them. And the very, very top was menopause by an absolutely country mile. So that's really shifted. There's now a menopause working group. We're now looking at uniforms and our menopause strategy. So in two, three years, that's shifted massively in the workplace. And I think you know that having the knowledge that there will be supports in place as well in workplaces and different places is absolutely critical. So I'm now confident that if I experience it in the workplace, I will be supported. And I don't need to hide it. I can go and say, I need this or I need that. 
rather than it being something wrong with me. So I think that my knowledge is some be some help to batch the knowledge that's been given to me by women who are speaking about it has been far more helpful than my own knowledge. Well, listen, your ability to communicate uh, the psychology around emotions, around mental health is, I mean, everybody listening to this will see how well you do it. But you also do it in art form, don't you? And your illustrations, oh my goodness, we love your illustrations. They're so clever. They're really cute. They're really simple. But you explain these psychological ideas in such kind of clear and easy to understand way. So we should probably just ask you about Brian the Brain. He's your main character. Just two secs. Here we go. Here's Brian oh, the Brain. Got a little Brian the Brain. <laughs> Some debate this so... for me. Mine's so bigger amazing. than that, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> <quite surprising. laughs> well, do you have a name for it, though? No, I don't have a name for my Lorraine brain. the Brain. But listen, yeah, tell us about that. How did you start? Where did you come up with the idea? Oh, I'm just going to illustrate these concepts. I mean, it came from my clinical work because I'd be sitting with people and trying to explain these big jargony psychological terms, which are quite disengaging, to be totally honest, to say, let's conceptualize catastrophizing with this like theoretical, you know, it, it becomes quite overwhelming and people disengage when it's overwhelming. And I just wanted to make things accessible. So I would sit and I worked with children previously. So I, obviously with children, you know, you can't use too many big words. You need to sit and draw. So I always did that in my clinical work with children. Then I moved into working in different areas and I worked with brain injury for quite a long time. And again, trying to make it accessible, I would draw a brain and say, well, this is what's happening. It would just be this, let's pull a bit of paper out of the printer and I, I, trying to find a pen that works in the NHS and, uh, and drawing it out and giving it to somebody that went away with them. And they come back and say, I used your drawing. You know, I was adding bits to it. So a lot of her work was around that. And as well, it's a lot less confronting than looking at somebody all the time if somebody's uncertain to look at something together. So you're looking at a bit of paper and you're doing it together. So that's not unique to me. A lot of psychologists will do that. But then I started thinking, I really want to share this beyond kind of sitting in a clinic room with one person. And I started kind of doing, well, I got an iPad for my birthday. No, that's a lie. I asked for an iPad for my birthday and didn't get one. So I went and bought one myself <laughs> because my husband didn't get me it. So I went and bought one and an iPad pen and I started drawing it for a brain injury group I was doing. So I started drawing these concepts um, so people could see them visually. And then they seem to stick in people's memory more. So for example, we draw the rumination wheel, how people would get caught up in ruminations. And then the idea came that it was like a hamster wheel. So you go round and round and round and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. You can't get off it. So it's about finding kind of roads off it and what we could do to get off it and how we can deal with it. And noticing you're getting caught up in this wheel. And what I saw is people really remembered the drawings. And by remembering the drawings, they remembered the concept and they were able to use it. So they said, for example, oh, Emma, I noticed I was getting caught up in my hamster wheel this week, but I found a way off it because I saw I was on it. Um, I started putting them on Instagram, which grew exponentially very quickly, which was a bit of a shock because I thought maybe I might get my mum and dad and uh, brothers and husband following me. But that was actually unrealistic because none of them are on social media. So um, so I thought I might get a few followers, um, but it just grew exponentially because people were engaged with them. And that obviously became the books and then the cards, which are the images on the front. So we've got the new cards out this year, which have the images on the front and then the exercise in the back. And I think those work really well because it's much easier to remember an image than remember lots of words. 
yeah, it's easy to dip into, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think one of the most helpful things you talk, I was a very early follower of oh, okay. on Instagram. One of the things that I found most useful and I think will be most useful for our listeners is this sense of burnout and stress. So if you could explain how we could possibly be more relaxed in our more stressful, more burning outy moments, that's quite helpful. So it's not about, you know, taking a bath. You know, have a bath, light a candle. It's really about being relaxed in the moments of great stress, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think burnout is really complex. So stress is effectively, if you think about emotions as energy, it's your brain getting your body ready to deal with something. And to deal with something, you need energy. And that's helpful because, for example, coming on this podcast today, my brain went, oh, I've got this thing to do. You need some energy, Emma. Here you go. Thank you very much, brain. But actually, if that goes on for too long, it's like keeping your foot on the gas pedal of a car. Things start to wear out and that's physically, mentally, you start to become tired. Your body effectively becomes out of balance. So the first thing, like you said, is spotting stress and understanding stress. And it's okay. We all have stress in our life and that's okay when it works for us. But actually, it's understanding when that stress is becoming too much and noticing how you're responding to it. So having ways that you can respond to stress, thinking about how you do respond. Is it helpful? Is it unhelpful? What can you do when you feel stress in itself? Taking action for the stress rather than avoiding it, because if we avoid it, then it just keeps on going and keeps on going. But also, like you said, it's also about focusing on things that truly relax us, because how we offset that kind of foot on the gas pedal reaction is by doing things that nurture us and that help heal that response. So engaging our parasympathetic nervous system, which helps downregulate our bodies and helps us heal. And often what we do is the things that do that are the things that help us relax, bring us joy. So meeting people, doing things that really get us into the moment or we just really engage with gets into kind of a flow state. There's lots of things, different things for different people. But what we often don't do is prioritize them because they're seen as kind of indulgent or things that we can do as a treat or things we need to do at the end of a to-do list. So we're not prioritizing the things that actually are fundamentally good for us and help manage the stress response. And we need to prioritize those. So prioritizing rest and relaxation. And like you say, a bath for me actually does work really well, but yeah, that does help me downregulate. But it's not just having a bubble bath or having a, you know, a nice kind of like, you know, treat. It's actually ensuring that you are relaxing and engaging that system throughout the day, throughout the weeks, throughout the months as a priority and as much as a priority as your to-do list and what you need to do. So we can't see rest, relaxation as something. Luxury is something that's essential and we need to work out what makes us feel that way and how we can do that. We'd love to talk a bit about children and teenagers because obviously a lot of our listeners are parents like we all are ourselves and being able to talk confidently and helpfully about emotions. I mean, we struggle to do it ourselves. It's even a bigger deal for kids, isn't it? Because they're going through so many emotions. What do you think parents need to do? What is the best way to address it, do you think, as a parent, if you're worried about your children? So I guess there's multiple components to that question. The first one is kind of helping children respond to their emotions. But you did tap in that we have a lot of emotions and we have a lot of emotions about our children's emotions and how our brains are designed. They're designed to connect and pick up emotions. So When your children are stressed, the most natural response in the world is for you to become stressed too. What happens when you become stressed? Often you react in kind of quite 
in strong ways, you might react in a stressed way back. So the very first crux of supporting children with their own emotions is understanding your own emotions and how you respond, noticing how you're responding. And see, often we create stress in each other because our children get stressed. We then kind of get stressed back at them. They get more stressed and it just bounces off each other. So our brains are so interconnected with emotions that we create them in other people. So it's understanding yourself and thinking about how you can respond you know, when children are getting stressed or when children are shouting. And also, none of us are perfect with that. You know, it's also just learning from when things go wrong as much as when things go right. But I think, you know, there's there's multiple things you can do in response to specific emotions. But I think at the core of it is just allowing space for emotions, allowing children to have them, helping them if you can understand them, letting them speak about them. Children don't always want to speak about them, but encouraging names for them, developing that language, particularly when they're small around emotions so they can describe them. But also children learn from seeing how adults behave. And that's the key way children learn and teenagers too. So that means talking about maybe when you you know, responded angrily, just saying, oh, I responded angrily. I was feeling quite frustrated. You know, maybe I could do this differently. So talking about your own emotions, modeling how not just how you do it right, because that's unrealistic. We all get things wrong. But, mo- you know, more than that, you can talk about when things go wrong as well, that I was pretty frustrated when we all left the house this morning and, you know, I couldn't find that and you had left that last minute. And then obviously talk about what you can do about it as well. So having open discussions, have a space to discuss emotions, it's a normal part of life. I think that's the main thing we could do. And it doesn't need to be too complex. It's just talking about it, allowing them to show them, talk about them, And I think if we start at that and notice our own emotions and how we respond to others' emotions, that's the kind of building blocks. And then we can go on from there. Your cards, your 45 cards for self-care are really helpful, actually. I would really suggest to mums to get that. So thank you so much. You are at The Psychology Mum, aren't you, on Instagram? Yeah, that's correct. Brilliant. Well, we could listen to you all day, all day. Thank you. And actually, I was just going to say, we have... The book, the emotional toolkit, and a, a pack of your cards to give away on our Facebook group. Oh, wonderful. Thank you thank so you. much, Emma. Yeah, and thank you very much for making that really enjoyable. If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trisha's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. Well, at some point, we will have a proper jingle for our um, nostalgia noodle. Where have you been this week Mm. back in the time TARDIS, young Trish? Well, I don't know whether you're going to like this because I'm going to talk about vests again. I bought myself, treated myself to a new three pack. To add to the collection. Three pack from M&S. Lovely. What I have in my mind, I have this huge storage space, <laughs> like Mariah Carey's Christmas stuff. Oh, imagine that. Every kind of vest you could ever imagine. Well, I like these ones because they go all the way down the trunk. 
that an awful word, trunk, your body, trunk. Let's think about sort of dismembered bodies. Anyway, got me thinking about where it all began, this love of vests. Do you remember the little ladybird vests that we all had when we were little? The ladybird on the label. I think there could have been knickers as well, vests and knickers. Yeah. The little ladybird on the label. And that's that's how our mums wrangled us into them because they had, oh, look at this lovely little ladybird. <laughs> I loved those. That's I think that's where where it all began, Rain. Ground zero for the vest obsession. Yes, exactly. What year would that have been then, Trish? How old are you? Okay. Early 70s. Might even have been late 60s. We've only been three. Oh my goodness. Goodness, a long time ago. Well, what a lovely way to end the season, season 10, with all that lovely advice. It's a penultimate one, isn't it? Well, it's the end of season 10. If we're being pedantic, end of season 10, and then we have Marianne's a special. You know me. I've got it all on the spreadsheet. It's yes. very clear. But anyway, thank you all for listening all the way through season 10 with us. Um, and please do look forward to our Christmas special. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.